Well, if you are joining us this morning for the first time, we are at the very end of the book of Exodus. If you have been with us here in this journey so far through the Pentateuch, and by Pentateuch, you know, we kind of use that word a lot, and that really is just the first five books of the Bible, Pentateuch. It's like five books. That's all it means. And it is just these first five books of the Bible, which really are one epic story that Israel held on to, passed on to future generations, and really is the crux of everything. All of the Bible hangs on these first five books of the Bible and this overarching narrative and story that happens within these five books. And so today we come to the end of book two, right? The end of Exodus. And if you remember the story thus far or where we have gone, you know, the book of Exodus opens with God's people enslaved in Egypt. God had revealed himself to his to one particular family, to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants, and the story picks up in Exodus where they are enslaved. And it's not just slavery, it's genocide. I mean, they are, it is as bad of a conditions as you can imagine for Israel is where they are, underneath the most powerful nation imaginable, probably still to this day imaginable. If you just think of power and control, ancient Egypt was it. And so Israel really is without hope, and in desperate situations, and God raises up Moses. And we look to these narratives, the story of Moses. God uses Moses to confront Pharaoh, to give comfort to his people, and ultimately to deliver them. And he does, miraculously delivers his people from the most powerful foe, the most powerful government in the history of the world. I mean, this is it. And God delivers them. Not only does he deliver them, but he brings them out of Egypt through the Passover. He provides a way for his people to be close to him and to remember him through this, through this new feast and way to remember. And he brings them out from Egypt, and then they get pursued by the Egyptians. And even then, God destroys the Egyptian army that was pursuing them. He splits the seas. Right? I mean, God is doing, it's an amazing story of God's deliverance of his people of how God took them out of Egypt. But it doesn't, the story doesn't end just there. It could, with a great story of deliverance, but then rather it also picks up, the story continues with them traveling. And as they travel, they grumble and complain, and they begin to fear and worry about their food and their water. And God makes covenants with his people. He gives them laws and statutes he meets his people where they are, and he gives them really what they need and, and just reiterates to them who he is and his position towards them and covenants himself to them, and they covenant themselves to God in the desert. He leads them ultimately to this mountain, to Mount Sinai, where we've been now for really for the last month or so. He brings them to the mountain, and God's intention, as he's made clear through Moses to the people, right, was for, I was going to deliver you out of slavery and bring you to myself on this mountain, and I will make you a holy nation. I will make you a nation of priests. When you hear the trumpet, right, you are to come up onto the mountain, and you will see me. You will know the God of Israel, right? You will know who I am, and you will fear, and you will worship me, and I will make you mine. I mean, it's, it's this beautiful picture, but the people are afraid, right? And they stay back, and they don't want. And instead, they tell Moses to go for them, you know, you go on our behalf, and Moses does. They're given the law, so God, again, reaches to his people through his laws. Not a, you have to follow these laws, or I won't be your God anymore, but rather, well, here, these are, 
I have to give you laws to keep you focused on me, to remind you of who I am, because you clearly are too afraid. You're, you're, you're not trusting me, so I'll give you law to continue to direct your heart towards me. And then right away, like Deirdre preached last week, they just break the very first one. You will have no other gods before me. And as Moses goes up on the mountain and he is gone, they make a calf, a golden calf, and they worship. And you have this, this question then, as we're coming into this tail end of Exodus, of really, I mean, what will God do with these people? Uh, they are a rebellious, hard-hearted, stiff-necked, you know, that's the language that the Exodus keeps giving people who just won't worship or trust God. And God would be in his rights. I think this was in the Q&A even last week. You're like, man, why doesn't God just start over with these people? You know, and, and he would be in his rights to do that. And that comes up, right? And he says, he tells Moses, Moses, how about I just start over with you and your family? Just kind of like I did with Abraham, right? I picked one family and I made a nation out of them. Let's start over. Moses, I'll pick you and we'll go through you now. And Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, says, no, that's not what you promised to do, God. Like, this wasn't, that wasn't the plan you said. And if you, if you went back on that, right, then what would we know of you? Right? And God relents. It was probably always his plan to relent. <laughs> but reiterating to Moses and to his people just who he was through this, but you get this instruction then where Moses reveals to the people God's plan that he gave him up on the mountain, which was to dwell with them. That at the end of Exodus, rather than God rejecting his people, destroying them and starting over, rather the book of Exodus ends with the people building a tent for God to dwell in with his people. God is going to dwell with them. He gives these very detailed instructions multiple times through Exodus. We just read the last one of them where Moses is actually finishing the, the tabernacle where they build it and complete it. But he gives them this tent, a tent of meeting, a place where God will dwell with his people. Really a chance in so many ways for the people to respond to God after the golden calf, right? I mean, they were clearly, their hearts were moved as the narrative was going through here. I mean, I mean they, many were killed right off by the Levites, and we'll talk about that this summer when we get into the book of Leviticus for their sin. I mean, there, there's a great level of conviction over the golden calf, and so now they get this opportunity, right, to sh- demonstrate their devotion to God and that they could live under law. They are eager to show God that they can do it. They collect and gather all of the precious metals, all of these precious things. Again, very golden calf-like, but instead of erecting a calf, now they're going to use it to build this tent where God will dwell. And this tent is really meant to be then this reminder a daily reminder of God's presence and power with his people. Right? It's, because even if you looked at all those instructions that we was reading, I mean, it's, they're things for a house. It's not really what you would expect of an ancient temple of a god or things like that. It's almost like someone's living in there. Right? There's, there's going to be a table, and there's going to be candles, and there's going to be bread, and there's going to be rooms. You know, and, and, and that's really is God's intention. I will dwell with them. In Exodus 29... Verse 45 and 46, this is at the end of when God gives Moses the first time this instruction of building the tabernacle. At the very end of it, God speaks to Moses and tells him his intention for this tent, right? 
I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So what is God doing with this this tent? Because it is a bit strange in some ways or unexpected. You know, why would God dwell with his people like this and in this particular manner? And we do have to keep in mind again that the tabernacle or Exodus, the end of Exodus, is part of this broader narrative of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Because really what we have with the tabernacle, careful reader of the story, right, is reminded that this is not the first time God has given careful instructions on building things. This is very Noah's Ark reminiscent. It's actually very garden reminiscent of Eden with the precious jewels and the beauty and all of these things. And really you do have this kind of continuation of that story and its culmination because God's intention from the very, very beginning has been to reveal himself to first to Adam and Eve and to dwell with them in this beautiful place. It didn't work out because of their sin. His intention was to dwell with his people, with the whole world, because of their sin. It didn't work out, right? And then there's the building of the ark and this chance now to restart. God's intention through Abraham and on to that family, right, was to reveal himself to his people now and to dwell with them, that they would know who he was. It's always been God's intention from the beginning of the Pentateuch, right? From the very beginning of the Bible, God's intention has always been, I will reveal myself to my people and they will know that I am their Lord. They will know that I am their God, that they are mine and I am for them, right? They will trust me and I may dwell with them. It's always been the hope. It's always been his intention. But humanity is consistently needs saving and deliverance. Humanity continually falls into sin and needs to be rescued, continually needs instruction and reminders, continually needs to be shown who God is, continually needs someone to mediate for them, to go between them and God, and to continue this, pan, this, pl- this path or plan forward, right? From Adam and Eve, from, to Noah, to the building of the Tower of Babel, to Abraham's family, and the constant failures of each generation, to now to Moses and to the Exodus. Humanity has this constant lack or consistent lack of trusting in God and really treating Yahweh just like any other God. This seems to be one of the big intentions that Moses has here in in the Pentateuch. I mean, God continually just keeps trying to show to his people, I am not like all of the other gods You've, you've got to get a new picture in your mind. I am not like them. I am a God who you will fear and love. I am a God of power and justice and glory, but I am also a God who is intimately near you and for you. All of this has been to show humanity its greatest needs and to impress upon the reader really just how unique and wonderful God is. I think you see three ways through Exodus thus far where God has really demonstrated this. 
Right? There's really three things that he does for his people that really demonstrates kind of the three needs that really all of humanity has and that what God is willing to fill. And really for our own stories too. God has done these same things in us. Right? Like this, the story begins with deliverance from slavery. An incredible deliverance narrative. And it's not because of Israel's strength that he delivers them. It's not because of Israel's goodness that he delivers them. But he delivers them because of his strength, by the mighty arm of Yahweh, right? He delivered his people. Not because Israel was so strong, got strong, and so God delivered. But rather, God is so strong that he delivers. And not because of Israel's goodness. Israel is clearly not good. But because of God's goodness, he delivered And it provides a shared story of suffering and rescue, right, that connects God's people together. The story of the Exodus is the story of God's people, which still connects us today, right? We're in the same place. When we hear that narrative of these Israelites being rescued from a kingdom of darkness and of slavery and being transferred, being brought out, being brought into his, to become his people through all kinds, I mean, it's like, Oh, that's us. That's what God did for me when he delivered me from sin, when he delivers me from suffering. Like, this is our story. We all are in desperate need of deliverance. And all of us have experienced deliverance at various levels, right, in our lives. And it's exactly what we've needed. And it connects us. It connects us as a people to each other. And it connects us as a people to God to be delivered. But he doesn't just stop with deliverance. God also provides a covenant with his people. He gives law. He gives instruction. He gives promises. And it's not, again, in the narrative, it's not because God requires it to be our God that he gives us instruction or law or covenant that if we don't live up to our end of the deal, you know, he will revoke it. Rather, he gives his covenant, he gives his law, he gives his instructions for us because we require it because our consciences require it. It gives us a day-to-day fulfillment, a guides for living, these guardrails, these encouragements. God's covenant and law provides surety in our lives, a certainty to things, because I know that God has made a covenant with me. I know God's position towards me, because he said, he will be my God. He gave me his law. So I know he will fulfill it. I know who God is, and I know his position towards me. Where those deliverance narratives gives us that shared story, it gives us this new identity. God's covenant gives us certainty, right? It gives us this just, I know, I know God's position towards me because I'm part of his people, and here's what God says to his people. I will be your God. You will be my people. You will have no other gods before me. I will be on your side. I go before you. And then this third thing that he does and he provides here at the end of the Exodus is he also gives his very presence to his people. Not just the deliverance, which we've all experienced to some level, right? Not just his covenant and his promises, which we've also all experienced by reading scripture, hearing sermons, hearing about this God. It's great to know who he is and his Certain and have certainty around his promises towards us, but here at the end, he also provides his very self. He will dwell with his people. 
He is not distant or remote, but rather he will be intimate and very near. In the very center of the camp, God is going to dwell, right? They will look at this tent and they will see God in their midst every day, every night, right? You look at the tent and you see it. There's the cloud. God is with us. You see the fire. God is with us. God is intimately close and he is near. Leon Cass in his book on Exodus talks about that the tabernacle really does, it fulfills the deepest longings of our souls, right? To, to be in touch. You could, almost, you could touch the greatest and best right there, right? That, that reality that like God is right there. He is right here with us. He is not some distant and faraway remote God who I can never touch and see, who I can never know. He is near to us. He loves us, right? That nearness and love, right, really go hand in hand. Because without that, it'd be very difficult to have love for this God. Or you really walk away from the Exodus, and obviously this will be all of the Pentateuch, right? And you're supposed to really walk away with this. I mean, who is this God? There is none like Yahweh. There is no God like this. And who are these people that God would choose them to love and to care for in this way? There is no God who is as powerful as Yahweh, which he has demonstrated time and time again through the narratives and in our own lives. There is none, no power on earth, no power in the heavens who can compare to the power of God. There is no person on earth, no rulers or dominions, none who is as just as God, as wise as God which he has given through his word and through his covenant, through his law to his people. You walk away reading the law and you're like, this is amazing. <laughs> right? What God does this, takes care of the poor and the widow and the oppressed, brings justice to the wrongdoer. I mean, who, what, there is none like this. All the other gods are spiteful and vengeful and petty and all self-serving. All human leaders are the same, right? But the Yahweh is different. There is no God who is as just and as wise as this God. And then, with the tabernacle, there, and he would choose to be so near that he would come down and dwell in a tent in the desert with his people. Not some faraway, lofty palace in the sky where gods would dwell. This God will dwell in the midst of his people and be intimately close with them. You really can get a sense of really what the Pentateuch is after, of this fear and awe of God, because there is none like him, but also this love towards God, because I know that he is near me. I know that he is for me. I know that he is not far away, so I can actually love him because he loves me. But it does feel incomplete, right? The narrative, this, that last paragraph in Exodus does feel a bit, I mean, it's great. And you have this powerful picture of God coming and dwelling with the people. But there is some intentionality here that, that God is making a tent that's going to be taken down and put up constantly. 
and move around with the people. There's a, there's a temporariness to the plan that you do have to wonder, you know, what's the deal? Why, why a tent and not a temple if we're going to do this, you know? Why not something permanent? Why something so temporary? And then there is this feeling of Moses at the end isn't allowed in. Like he was just face to face with God. He was just intimate with him on the mountain. And now the glory of God descended on the tent. And it says Moses was not allowed to enter any longer. Now he's going to in the next chapter, but at least in this, at the construction of it, the glory of God fills the tent to the point where Moses himself can't go in. So while the book of Exodus ends really on a beautiful high note, it does give us, I mean, and again, it's part of a, this is part three of a four-part story. So it does give a little bit of a cliffhangers or at least preps us a little bit for these next several chapters, these next books of the, of the Bible, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But of what's, what's going to happen? Because the question at the end of Exodus really isn't about much about God. We know a lot about God at this point of the narrative. He has made himself abundantly clear. He is Yahweh. There's no God like him in terms of his power, in terms of his covenant, his knowledge, and in terms of his love for his people. But the question at the end of Exodus really is, you know, will these people really be able to handle God living amongst them? Like, right? I mean, they haven't demonstrated a lot of faithfulness to God with God being away. How is this going to go with God being right in the midst of the or even i mean do they even want this is this what they were hoping for or was this what they were even expecting was god to literally live right over there you know that that intimacy that closeness of god is something that's frightening at times too and I think as a reader, right, we are supposed to really identify within these narratives and within these people. And so it is this question of like, I mean, yeah, what, if I was Israel, would I be very thrilled about God setting up his tent so close to mine? Or, right, would I prefer to stay away, which clearly has been their posture when they got to the mountain and everything else. And they're going to be very happy to send the Levites into the tabernacle and to, to not have to go in. God provides his deliverance, he provides his covenant, and he provides his very presence. But it seems that the Israelites don't really want all three of those things. And I think if we're honest with ourselves too, we rarely want all of God either. We're we're more comfortable at times with one of the three or maybe two of the three, but rarely do we want all three. Right? We, at times, certainly want deliverance. Right? I think almost all of us have been in situations in our lives where we are in suffering, either due to our sin or someone else's sin, and we want to be delivered. God, deliver me. Right? You have the power to do this. There is no one else who can save me, who can save me from myself. I need deliverance. And we cry out to the Lord, just like the Israelites did in Exodus. But... Often, we don't want the law that comes next, 
or we don't want to enter into this covenant with this same God. We want the deliverance that God provides, but we don't want that covenant instructions that God gives. Or we may not want his presence to convict us as well. Sometimes we're really keen on God's law. We're very keen on the covenant. We like to think through those lens. We're eager for justice. We tend to think and see God's law everywhere, and we're eager to condemn others and to want justice. But rather, we often don't want God himself because we've put ourselves as God. And we fail to see our own need for deliverance in that. And other times, and in places, and really this is almost like a survey of the denominations of Christianity in, in the world, right? We're very keen on presence, you know, like big presence people, right? I really love the presence of God. I'm very, I want emotional experiences of God. I'm all for that. But deliverance, I don't know what I need to be delivered of. I already was delivered. I don't need to talk about um, sin. I'm not, I'm not very high on law, right? It's, it seems like we always kind of are vacillating between these things. I either really want God to deliver me from wherever I am right now, from whatever the suffering, the disappointment, the disillusionment I'm going through. God, I want you to deliver. Rarely do we want the law, even though we need it desperately, to follow God's law. And even more so, right, we have a very difficult time desiring or wanting God's presence with us. We're much like the Israelites. And here at Sinai, right, God is really hammering home the point to his people and to us as readers. God's presence was always the point. This was going nowhere other than this. You can't have me in any other way. The plan was for me to always dwell with you. This is it. He is the reward, not the promised land that they're going to. He was the reward the whole time. In Exodus, again, 29, 45 through 46, let me read that again, right? I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. It was always God's intention and plan to be with his people. Now, there's a great narrative here before this, actually building of a tabernacle, where God kind of pulls the curtain back a bit to the reader and tells to Moses and stuff, saying, well, you can go up without me to the land. If you want to just go to the promised land, you can go. I just won't go along. And Moses, right, no. And the people too respond, no. <laughs> and they mourn and they weep, right? Because God, again, has reiterated himself and shown himself to his people, right? There is no promised land without me, right? The whole point of bringing them to the mountain was so that they would cherish and delight in him and his presence, the promised land is just a bonus that comes a corollary that comes along with being with him. But that without him is not going to be worth it. And Israel struggles with this. We struggle with this. And we have to really ask ourselves, you know, what is preventing us and what is preventing them from really experiencing God's presence as our greatest reward? 
in our sufferings, in our disappointments, in our sins, just like Israel, right? We grumble and complain. And in that grumbling and complaining, in our, because this life is hard. This life is full of disappointment and disillusionment. There are things, we had hopes that don't turn out. We had things that we thought were going to happen that we have people act against us in ways that we didn't deserve. We act against people in ways that we didn't think we were going to do. We're disappointed. And we experience guilt and shame. We experience these feelings and these thoughts of I'm not good enough. I surely could never, I'm not the type of person that God could love or God could use. We doubt God's presence. We doubt his position towards us. God is certainly against me. He would certainly not be for me, someone like me. And so we stand off. We stand away from God rather than drawing near to him. And what God gives his people is a way and a means and methods to still be able to draw near to his presence, for God to be with his people despite their feelings, despite their continued sin. He's not going to leave them. The Israelites were given rituals and laws, right, to remind themselves. We're going to read Leviticus, we're going to read Numbers, ways in which to continue to, to have God dwell with them and for them to experience that presence of God in their lives. We, as Christians, right, have been given Jesus Christ. And we are in such a different place. Same intention of God, same hopes, same disappointments, same sin, same issues of trembling and fear, of drawing away, of grumbling and complaining about everything in our lives. And we're in the same boat. But rather than giving rituals and laws, we've been given Jesus as the fulfillment of all of those things. And the New Testament makes it very clear that Jesus is this true and ultimate high priest. This is the book of Hebrews, who enters into the tabernacle on our behalf so that we can now boldly have access and enter into the Holy of Holies. He is the fulfillment. He is the true tabernacle who gave his body for us, removing that guilt and that shame so that we can now boldly approach the throne of God. That we don't have to stay back. But it does require some effort on our parts to be able to live in the presence of God on a daily level. Right? I mean, this is the call. To Israel, it's the call to us to live as if God is real. To live as if Yahweh is who he said he is. To live as if we are his people that he has delivered. To live as if we are a people who have been delivered from slavery and transferred into his kingdom. To live as a people that God has actually covenanted to, that he will not forsake or leave. To live that way and to live as if God's presence is near, that he is with me. And as Christians, not even just near, but in me. I have access to the Spirit of God. He is with me. He is in me. The New Testament describes, and the book of Deuteronomy will describe this as well, a daily training of people to remember and to know who Yahweh is. This requires training. It does require work and effort on our part to renew our minds and to worship God. And really, you know, these, these terms get thrown out. They're very kind of just Christian sounding and, you know, you need to renew your mind and what does that mean and all those things. Worship God more. What we're really talking about, what Israel was called to do and what we're called to do is in our daily 
because that's what, the tabernacle is such a daily thing. We'll see this. This is just daily life. A part of their daily life now is going to be God dwelling with them and the way that they're going to interact with God. This is for us too. It's not a once a week thing. This is a daily interacting with God where we, we will experience constantly because we're in the flesh and we're in a fallen world. We will constantly experience disappointments, failures, and hurts. So we will have constant opportunities to train ourselves to put our hope in God. To take our disappointments and our hurts and bring them to the Lord. Reminding ourselves of whose we are and what God has done for us. And cultivating a daily worship of God. The Psalms speak of this constantly. You know, if, if you've never done this or what this looks like, you know, we, the New Testament will use these phrases like abiding in Christ. The Psalms will talk about this too, of meditating on the law day and night. You know, this, there's, this, there's this idea of we need to be able to put our hopes in God in the midst of our daily life, where he is our greatest reward, where his presence is enough for us. I say, if I never get this, but I have God, I have enough. Right? That's the good life. That's the joy and the prosperity that is promised in the gospel. I have God. I have enough. And God is trying to get his people and giving his people him very, his very self here at the end to daily show them and to remind them that he is enough for them and that he will dwell with them. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we worship you and we thank you for who you are. Lord, we recognize our sin is always before us. We can clearly and easily see how quickly and easy it is for us to doubt you and to treat you less than you deserve. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We thank you for the spirit that is at work in us, that is constantly convicting and bringing us to each other and to the truth. Lord, train us in putting our hope in you, in abiding in you, in finding our satisfaction in you. There are so many competing gods in our culture, in our world, that are demanding from us and promise to make us happy, promise to give us joy and completeness, fulfillment. Uh, Lord, if it's families, houses, work, Lord, there's just so many things that tell us that once we have it, we will finally be fulfilled. Lord, we know that it's not true. Lord, we know that there is no fulfillment outside of you. So Lord, continue to show us that. Help us, Lord, Help our hearts to be moved by the power of the gospel, the sacrifice that you gave to give us yourself. Lord, the breaking of Christ's body, the shedding of his blood for us so that we could be brought near and never have to be outside of your presence, Lord. Lord, humble us and encourage us, Lord, through your son, Jesus Christ, who we pray. Amen.